Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. We are going to look at Parshat Chukat, and one of the fun things about Parshat Chukat in my life is that Parshat Chukat is um, the um, maftir, can think of the word, the maftir for for many different parshiot um, based on the the theme of the red heifer. <clears throat> But it was my maftir for Parshat Kitisa for Shabbat Para. Uh, and so the first three aliyot, which are typically read, um, as, uh, as the, you know, the first three aliyot, like the daily reading aliyot, are read all together. It's about 28 verses. And that's the maftir. So, um, so I feel very close and also, uh, very afraid of this maftir and this parsha because of that. Yeah, Jay. It was mine too. Ah, there you go. It was also Annette Berman's, uh, for those of you who know Annette. Uh, so it is, it is a, a famous maftir and, and those of us who have learned the whole thing often get called upon to read it because it's very long. Um, so I'm going to share my screen while we go through the parsha a little bit. Um, as you've probably noticed, one of our rabbinic interns, Rachel Cohen, is with us, and she is going to be doing some of the teaching and conversation pieces with me, but I'll take us through this beginning part um, like I did last week. So <clears throat> I'm going to just very briefly go through this uh, this ritual of of the the red heifer, the para aduma. If you want to know more about it, I wrote about it this week. So you can read in the Jewish Journal or in our Taste of Torah. I wrote about this particular um, verse here, the second verse. And you and it was really good. Your article oh, is really good. Thank you. I appreciate that. So um, so one of the things that I that that you'll notice in this verse, and this is not the verse that we will be talking about, but in terms of what this ritual is, is that it is a ritual that is done in order to purify you from coming in contact with a dead body, with a corpse. But in turn, in doing the ritual, you yourself become impure. So it's one of these very bizarre rituals that in doing it, you are, you are allowing for purification, but in the action of actually performing it, you yourself are now impure. So if you think that is compelling, read what I wrote. Um, so we're, we're going to skip through this a little bit because it just goes through how it is performed. Um, and, and why? Uh, so you'll see here in verse 11, he who touches the corpse of any human being shall be unclean for seven days. And then this is what, um, this is what you do to make your, make yourself ritually pure again. Let me just move you so that I can see these verse numbers. Give me one second. Okay. Um, so, so this is, this is part of kind of the punishment of if you, if you continue to stay in this, Tame state in this state of impurity, you will be given karet, which is the utmost punishment in Jewish tradition, that you are not only uh, punished, but you are actually cut off from the congregation completely. Um, so you are no longer part of the community, nor are you able to be um, kind of called upon by the community. So it's as if you are uh, disowned, but in like a very grand sense. Um, 
And it, and it, we believe that it also refers to your soul. That's not just your body, but your soul is also then cut off from the community. Okay. So then the people arrive in scene and the, the main parts of this Parsha, one of which we will be talking a lot about today, uh, is the death of Miriam and the death of Aaron. That's what we'll be talking about today and the hitting of the rock. Those three things all happen in this Parsha. So three very famous pieces all in one parasha. So this is right before Miriam dies. They arrive in scene, Miriam dies and she's buried there. There are some really beautiful commentaries on what does it mean that she died there. Rabbi Klickfeld used one yesterday in a bar mitzvah we did together. Uh, then the community is without water because when Miriam dies, the well goes away. The people quarrel with Moses. They say, you're such a bad guy. You took us out of this really wonderful place that had all these beautiful things. And now we're going to complain because we don't have beautiful things like figs and vines and pomegranates like we used to have. And we also don't have any water. So what are you going to do about that? Moses and Aaron go to God after falling on their faces, whether that's from embarrassment or in prayer or because they're just so overwhelmed. And God comes to them and says, you and your brother Aaron, I guess this is also a pretty, um, a pretty famous piece, um, will take your staff and assemble everybody uh, before you. And you're going to produce water from this rock that you are going to be in front of. So he takes the rod and, oh, I did mention this, hitting the rock. Okay, just long morning. Um, takes the rock and instead of speaking, we all know this story, instead of speaking to the rock, he hits the rock. He raises his hand and strikes the rock, not once, but twice, um, and water comes out of it. Now, you would think if this was something that God didn't want him to do, God wouldn't allow water to come out of the rock. So why God lets water come out of the rock? Who really knows? But the next time God and I chat, I'll ask. So then God says to Moses and Aaron, well, you didn't trust me. You didn't believe that if you were going to, if you would talk to the rock, I would give you the same thing. So now your punishment is that you are not going to be able to go into the land. Um, so, um, so this is, this is the piece of the story. I'm just trying to decide how much of this to really tell you about. Um, this is the part of the story where they come up against, um, well, Moses sends people to this other king and then they come up against the, uh, the king of Edom, um, and they have an exchange back and forth. I don't feel like it's important enough to go through. So um, I'm not going to go through it too much just for sake of time. Uh, this then right after that is when God basically tells Moses and Aaron that Aaron is going to die. So he tells, uh, God tells Moses to bring Aaron before the people Um and that you're going to take off of all, take off all of his garments and make sure that he passes them along to his son, Eleazar. And then Aaron shall be gathered unto the dead. Moses did as the Lord had commanded. They ascended at Mount Hor in the sight of the whole community. And then, uh, Moses stripped Aaron of his vestments and put them on his son, Eleazar. And Aaron died there on the summit of the mountain. When Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain, this is our verse, Vayer'u Kohaida. Is that right, Rachel? Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. I just, the numbers are off here, so I just want to make sure. And the whole nation saw 
that uh, that Aaron had had uh, passed away, had had died. It says here had breathed his last breath. Um, and Aaron and they sorry, and they wept for Aaron 30 days, the entirety of Beit Israel. Um, so we are going to take Kushiot some good questions on this verse here of Aaron's actual death. Uh, hello, Bonnie and Bernie. Sorry, I hadn't seen you before. And Denise, uh, Jay, go ahead. Well, the, the question that always comes up to my mind is, okay, the whole Israel community bewailed Aaron for 30 days and Miriam, we just find out dies. There's yeah. no mourning for Miriam. And it's very annoying because a lot of people, myself included, think Miriam was a very important part because she, she, and the women were the ones who helped who helped get us through the the waters in the Red Sea. Great. So why is Aaron getting this full fanfare of mourning, especially given that we, given the days that that um, that the people mourned for him? Why is is Miriam just kind of mentioned as someone who dies? Now the well does go away, and there are many commentaries on on how the community reacted to her death. But it's true that in the Torah, it really shows true grief for Aaron and not as much for Miriam as a character. <clears throat> Renee. I was going to say, ask you the same question, but even before that question, I've kind of always been wondering about why it was talking earlier about the um, person who does the cleaning of the body, why he becomes Tameh, because isn't that like a kavod position that, I mean, somebody has, that's part of the dying process, right? Or burial process that the body be clean and whatever. It's so a great question. Why, why are they punished for that as opposed to be held, being held up to, the, uh, to honor? And is that also the case for the person who's the showmare? Okay. It's a great question. I'm not going to answer it because it doesn't have to do with our verse. I know. Um, but, but just know that it's different in today's day in terms of Tahara and Shmira than it was back in the day when, um, when Tahara and Shmira were being done um, a little bit more intimately, I guess I'll say, uh, and without, without proper, uh, proper, maybe not fair, uh, without, uh, without the way of making sure that it could still stay, uh, a pure act. And was Eliezer the only son of Aaron's that was included in the, his dying ritual? Yes, um, probably because of his age, right? So Aaron's two, two of Aaron's sons died and Eleazar is the next son. So he receives the, um, the kavod after, after the two of them. Yeah. Elon. Yeah. I'm just curious as to the significance of the number 30. Why 30? Why not seven? Why not 60? Um, Great. So as we know, there are many different uh, numbers used over and over again in the Torah. 30 actually isn't one of them. 30, uh, we often hear 40, we often hear four or seven, as Elon said. Uh, we very rarely hear 30. I won't say this is the only time because I can't say that for sure, but it, but it's definitely one of the few times that we hear 30. We know it in modern day as Shloshim, right? We know that 30 days makes sense, but Elon brings up a really interesting point that it's not as many as 40 and it's not the completion of something like seven in terms of creation. So why 30? Why, why that 
very specific and yet not connected number um, to the other the other types of completion that we see throughout our our narrative. Other Kushiot. Okay. All right. I'm going to pass this on to Rachel because I've already done a lot of talking um, and let her teach some of the sources that she's brought this morning. Great. So um, fantastic questions. I shared many of those questions, particularly the comparison with Miriam, although I didn't I didn't find a ton in traditional commentaries that, that satisfied my question in that regard. So what I ended up digging into a little bit more was what the commentators mostly end up focusing on is comparing the death of Aaron to the death of Moses, even though they don't take place in the same Parsha because they're both held up as significant leaders. And I believe the mention of Moshe's death is also 30 days specifically. Um, so I, they're like, um, they're very similar, but, but not exactly the same. So that ends up being the focus of a lot of their attention. And what caught, what, what, what struck me was how these narratives about who Aaron was as a person tend to really come up in the Midrash as an explanation about what was so different about him that like, well, I'll, I'll bring up in a second that the textual difference between his death and Moshe's death is very small, but they read into that a lot about Aaron's personality and who he was as a character that kind of marked him as, as a leader. Uh, so, so, uh, so anyway, we'll we'll dig into some of these midrash, but first to to speak about the more um more shot concrete level of the difference that they're speaking about. So we read in that verse, the whole the whole community knew that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel, Kol Beit Israel wept for 30 days. When you compare this to the death of Moses in Deuteronomy, there it says Bnei Israel wept for Moses. So the consensus it was a surprising amount of consensus amongst many commentators, including um, Rashi and Rabbeinu Bahia. But what they say basically is that for Aaron, this means it was men and women. And that for Moshe, it was literally only the men who were crying for his death. So why was it men and women together that were um, that were mourning Aaron so much? And there are multiple references in these commentaries to this idea that we also, it's in liturgy many places, the idea that Aharon was a person who was Ohev Shalom, uh, Urodef Shalom, that he was a lover of peace and a pursuer of peace. And the specific thing that both Rashi and Rabbeinu Bachia mention is they say, well, that means that he brought peace between friends, but also specifically between many husbands and wives. So there, he was like, did a lot of couples counseling, I guess, in his in his habit of being a pursuer of peace. So that's why specifically it was men and women uh, who were upset when he died because of all this kind of like couples peacemaking that he, that he had done. You know, I'm just going to, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Um, the, just so you know, I, this is what happens when I teach with Rabbi Shapiro too. We, we just interrupt each other right. over and over again. Usually he's interrupting me, but, <clears throat> but I'll play his role today. Um the the bar mitzvah boy yesterday, Henry Kaplan, uh, spoke about this verse. This was the verse that he chose for his drash. And when he and I were looking through, one of the things that we spoke about, he also used those two commentaries, the Rashi and Rabbeinu Bachia. And one of the things that we spoke about was that it's interesting that couples are even mentioned, uh, specifically because we don't actually know much about Aaron's wife. We know about his his children, but not much about his wife. 
but that maybe couples are only mentioned because he was he was interested in people, right? Maybe Moshe was too far removed from the people in his in his kind of angle of leadership. And Aaron was more closely related to the actual people on the ground. And, you know, you hear very often, especially in the rabbi world, you very often hear, oh, she's the academic rabbi and he's, he's the personal rabbi or he's the, um, he's the people's rabbi and she's the academic. Um, or, or vice versa, obviously. I, I use those genders on purpose, but I think that, that the, what we're seeing here in the, in those specific commentaries is that maybe Moshe was also beloved, but in a different kind of way. He had a different kind of leadership and Aaron brought in the women just as much in, in terms of their own family and relationships where Moshe kind of fell short in that part of his, of his leading. So, so yes, I mean, for sure, when I think about Aaron's role in the the golden calf incident, you know, for example, he was seen as the person who um, almost to a fault was, you know, like in with the people, you could argue enough to try and get them back on the right track or, you know, but but that's definitely, you know, that comes up in other places as a contrast between them. Yeah. Uh, Just to build on that, one of these um, Midrashic references I was going to bring up contrasts his role with the people and Moses. So we read Mm. in Sifra, which is Midrash on Leviticus, but as Midrash does, it weaves together pieces from many different books. So um, we, this pops up too. Um, It says, why is it that the entire house of Israel mourned Aaron for 30 days? And, um, and the part of the house of Israel, not the entirety mourned for Moses. Aaron never told a person, a man or a woman, you have offended, but Moshe, because he rebuked them, he gave them tochacha. Um, it is written of him and the children of Israel, implied but not all of them, mourned Moses. So it's kind of pointing out that like Moshe, it's like a good cop, bad cop distinction. <laughs> that Moshe was the guy who told people no and scolded them when they did something wrong. Um, and not to say that, you know, Aaron, I would imagine if you would look at like the logs of a priest, you know, there would be times when they'd be like, no, that you're not, that's not how you're supposed to offer the sacrifice, but we don't see it in like the communal sense in the same way. So I just thought it was really interesting how they, they, um, they, they kind of like teased out that element of, of perhaps they had like a good cop, bad cop dynamic in terms of the, how the people saw them. It's also interesting that um, in the Talmud, and some of you might know this in the Talmud bite is how you refer to the wife of someone. Uh, and, and you can say that that's sexist, or you can just say the woman was most likely the one in the home. And so when it referred to the home, it was referring to the things that a woman did, but also referring to a woman if you didn't know her name. Um, so it's interesting also that in, and I hadn't thought about this until you just brought in that uh, midrash, which I know you sent me, but I didn't look at. <laughs> um, the that uh, that it says Beit Israel for Aaron and Bene Israel for Moshe, which goes back to your uh, kind of drash on this midrash that Bene Israel is much more uh kind of parent to child where there are those boundaries and there are those moments of punishment and I might not like you but I still love you kind of kind of uh feelings and and that in terms of Aaron's death 
that everyone, including the whole household, like when you think about Sara'at, right, you, you hear that Sara'at affected not just the people, but also the house um, and the clothing and everything like this, this type of mourning really did the same thing. It affected everything that was within within the household. So interesting. I mean, it's not what they mean by bayit here, but in ter- if you if you bring the Aramaic into it, it, sure. it is an interesting draft. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, so just to <laughs> to to bring in a couple other pieces of midrash that um, that you want may not be connected. We'll kind of you know see what connections we can draw from them all together. Before there- you, Rachel, before you go on, maybe if if they're not going to be directly connected, maybe let's see if people have comments or questions sure. about the ones you brought, and then let's we can go to the we can go to the other ones. Yeah. Does anybody have any questions or comments? <laughs> if not, it's okay. I just wanted to be able to pause here if you wanted to say something. Or questions and comments in general. They don't have to be specific to the texts. Okay. All right. Keep going, Rachel. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I saw these as kind of three different elements of Aaron's leadership that got, that, you know, brought to the forefront in talking about it. Uh, so the other one is I see kind of a looking backwards to look at him as a, heroic figure in some ways. And the specific incident that comes up, it's mentioned in Bamidbar Rabbah. There's initially some some disbelief that Aaron actually died, which, you know, we can analyze that psychologically, that there's often, you know, like shock or denial when when people are processing that news. But But one of the reasons that that was happening here, people were saying, how could the angel of death hurt him? Mm. Um, a man who has halted the angel of death and held him back referring to an incident that happened um, after the Korah rebellion when God is really angry and wants to kind of get rid of all of the followers of Korah and sends a plague. And what ends up happening is, is Moshe, you know, interestingly, Moshe is the one who encourages him. But when the people are looking back, they see Aaron as kind of the heroic figure in this moment. Um, Moshe sends Aaron into this like plague that's unfolding and says, you have to kind of like clean this up. And he offers some incense to, you know, make expiation. In other words, like clear, spiritually cleanse this, this plague that's happening and try and bring it to a halt. So what, what we read and gets referenced in this midrash is he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was halted. He was using a particular spiritual tool to help bring about the end of the plague um, in, you know, if you look at that story directly, I don't think he necessarily appears to me as, as much like larger than life as it kind of becomes when referenced in this midrash, that it's almost like he was, he was superhuman in some way that, that they're looking at him as somebody who almost could hold, hold back the angel of death. So like, how could the angel of death come for him too? with that? Like he's actually gone. Um, so it, it. Um, I think even more so than those like quiet moments of making peace between people in that way, I think he was, is almost, he was an intermediary between God and people, or certainly that's the way that people saw them as he was somehow like able to be wrestling with the very forces of, of life and death. And so that kind of explains like the level of shock that they would have felt when, when it became clear that this person was no longer um, living in this realm. That like even even this person, um, he too has. Um, and I wonder if that goes to the thirty days. Like I wonder if that's 
if it just took people more time to come to terms with the fact that Aaron had died, right? That if they saw, if they really saw him as a partner of God in terms of the way that he was with them as a people, but also the way that he was able to dodge the, um, the angel of death beforehand, maybe, maybe they really needed those 30 days to, to go through the steps of grief that seven days wouldn't have allowed them for, um, even as community members, which, you know, when you think about grief in our own communities, though we don't count it that same way, like if God forbid someone passed away in Elon's family, I, as the rabbi of the community, don't have an obligation to mourn, right? I have an obligation to be a, a pastor to the family, obviously, but I don't, I don't have the same obligatory tasks and blessings and those kinds of things to say for that family member. And yet what we're seeing in the Torah is that the people really took on those obligations of mourning and not just for the seven days of Shiva, but also beyond for those 30 days, which according to this Midrash maybe is because they were in even more shock with this death than they would have been with others. Right, right. And just some of the things you mentioned, it's almost like they took on the role of being direct family, like each each and every person felt that much of a connection. Um, Right. Right. A couple other just numerical thoughts that had occurred to me from from what we were talking about before, um, that if, you know, 40 is often seen as completion um, and seven is its own kind of, you know, creation and completion that like 30 is it's longer than some units of completion, but not quite 40. Like there's still something that's that's unfinished and not whole about the situation. Mm-hmm. Like it's long enough to allow for a certain amount of wholeness and yet to me, it's kind of symbolic of like grief in general, that, that it's never going to feel really complete or like there's closure. Um, so that, that's just another thing that came to my mind with the, yeah. the 30 and not 40. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Any other thoughts before we go to the next Midrash? 30, can the 30 be just time, time related, like 30 days in a month? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that. Again, time is a funny thing in the Torah, right? It didn't actually take them 40 years to go through the desert. Probably not. Um, so time is one of these things that we don't really know what 30 days or 40 years or seven days <laughs> meant, uh, to the author of the Torah. But yeah, I think it's possible that 30 days just as, as Rachel just said, you know, was a type of completion in that it was an entire month. And it's also possible that it was, um, symbolic or metaphorical for for exactly what Rachel just said that it wasn't completely forty days, uh, which is how how they felt about losing Aaron, Elon. So we know that uh, Moses was also mourned for thirty days. Prior to Aaron, is there any prescribed period uh, for anyone else of prominence in the Torah that they said? Uh, I don't know, Joseph, uh, Yaakov, Abraham passed away and they mourn for X number of days. Or is this the first, or is this the first time that there's a prescribed number of days? It's a great question that I can very easily look up, but just in my 
in my memory, I believe this is the first time we hear of a period of time. We hear of morning, but I don't believe we hear of a period of time or days specifically. But I can look it up while the next person is speaking or Rachel's teaching. Yeah, it's so, a really interesting question. So this is the precedent. There was nothing beforehand. Uh, uh, this is the first time they've said I think so. I'll look it up, but I think so. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember if, like, like Abraham and Sarah, if there was any mention of time. No, I mean, there's mention of the types of burial, obviously the bones when it comes to, you know, tr- taking bones from one place to another. Like, the way around burial is mentioned in, in lots of different kinds of detail throughout um, throughout the Torah before this. But I think this is the first time that time is mentioned in terms of grief. So I'll, I'll look. It's a it's a fascinating question. Joanna. Fascinatingly, um, at the very end of Breshit, we're told that the Egyptians mourned Joseph for 70 days. Really? That's really interesting. I forgot time was. I'll, I'll pull up the verse. I'll put the verse in the chat. Wow. I definitely didn't remember that. So the Egyptians mourned Joseph and it gives a time. Yeah. Interesting. I did not remember. Well, so there you go. So that so this isn't the first time. Huh. Fascinating. I did not remember that. Uh, Jay, go ahead. Um, I just noticed too. Um, uh, Jacob, there's a quote in Genesis 50:10 that they um, Joseph observed a seven day period of mourning for his father. Oh, and it says seven days. Yeah, it's uh, okay. 50. It's uh, Genesis 50 verse 10. Great. So clearly I just haven't paid attention to it uh, to remember it. So it has happened before. Um, so, but this, it sounds like this is still the first time 30 days is mentioned. Um, but that there are other times that are brought, uh, for both Jacob and Joseph for their, for their death. Fascinating. I never ever paid attention to that before. And now I'm sure I'll never not see it again. Yeah. I want to make a giant chart now of like, <laughs> I know that was gonna be one of those things that I'm like extremely aware of every time. Oh, fascinating. This is why we have this class because also your rabbis don't know everything about the Torah. Uh, okay, Rachel, go ahead and um, teach your sure. So the third piece is um, is a midrash from Avot to Rebbe Natan. That That's what I brought. That's so funny. Oh, so we have the same thing. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Okay, I might have changed up a little bit from what I uh, what I initially thought. Um, that talks about um, some of the tactics that he used specifically in order to achieve this peacekeeper status that he had. So this one reference, there's a couple different descriptions, but the one that I'll bring right now, it says, when two people were fighting with one another, Aaron would go and sit next to one of them and say, my son, look at the anguish of your friend, that the anguish your friend is going through. His heart is ripped apart and he is tearing at his clothes. He is saying, how can I face my old friend? I'm so ashamed. I betrayed his trust. Aaron would sit with him until his rage subsided. Then Aaron would go to the other person in the fight and say, my son, look at the anguish your friend is going through. And you get the idea. He repeats the same thing, tells both people that the other person feels very badly and is torn apart by this conflict and waits till both people independently have, you know, kind of like gotten to a calmer place. And then it says when the two people saw each other, they would embrace and kiss one, kiss, kiss one another. That is why it says, and the entire house of Israel wept for Aaron for 30 days after his death. Um, so 
what comes up for me when I read this is again, like, I wonder if um, similar to the, the, the second midrash I brought about him being like a life and death mediator. I wonder sometimes <laughs> if he becomes more, you know, like larger than life, like I said, in the way that people remember, which is, is something that happens when you, like, you know, it's great to go to a Shiva minion and hear the fantastic stories people tell. And sometimes the, you know, the biggest and boldest stories um, come come out first and foremost. So, so one thing that I kind of, it leaves me wondering is like, did he really use tactics like that? Um, is that kind of a, a, a caricature almost of, how, of what he was like as a peacemaker? Um, on the other hand, if that really was how he operated, um, I find it a kind of um, like a great use of being chutzpah that he had a way of like, I read this and I don't even know I would call it lying, even though technically it is because his intentions were so pure and it, it brought about such good results that I think it, it just kind of reveals um, his skill. Like if that was really how he operated, I can, I can understand how he had such a profound impact in the community that he was able to build so many connections between people. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it does leave me wondering, like, was um, did like, you know, did he, did he go too far? Were there times like some could argue interpreting how he responded in the golden calf incident? Was he like so much a person of the people that he, um, he was like too too much of the good cop and mm-hmm. uh, leaving leaving like too much for Moshe to have to come and fill in the cracks maybe um, just just kind of to to humanize him as as also comes up in you know eulogizing etc. Uh, Denise, so it's more of a vibe than a fully formed question, mm-hmm. but um, but maybe you'll hear the question. Um, cause I, I can't put in the words, but it feels like, like motion are in it. They're almost like contrasting two different styles of leadership, right? Where like motion is much more about like power and strength and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Rigidity almost. And Aaron is all about the love. Um, and the people naturally gravitate to the love. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but then the question that I feel as if like a swirl, but I just can't get it to straight line is it feels like, you know, we have like these incidents over and over and over and over throughout the desert years where people kind of fell short and didn't trust God. And then God like punishes and gets angry and this and that. And it, and it occurred to me like a few weeks ago, because we, in the, in the thing with the spies, because and and God is like oh but I did all these great things for you and but that's not what builds trust right like in in everyday relationships you don't feel trust because somebody just wowed you and blew you away you feel trust you know when mom stays up all night and wipes your nose and it's it's the little things that are what create that bond and that security mm-hmm. and so I don't know and then in the end Moses hits the rock and does a harsh thing and he ends up like getting punished too. So it's almost like right. in the end, it's sort of giving this message that the love message is the one that kind of wins out in the end. Mm. Yeah. I don't, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Take away. Like they for sure have different styles of leadership and 
And I think you're highlighting that, that Aaron's was very powerful and effective in this way, in some way, it, differently than how, the, how Moshe had an impact. I, I'm also thinking of like love languages when you were talking yeah. about, <laughs> you know, it seems like he, he really had a handle on the, the love language of, of the Israelites throughout this um, yeah. process. Um, yeah. yeah, I took a, a fantastic class once where we were talking about the, the theme was kind of the four people that it took for us to go from from slavery to freedom. And so the leaders we looked at were Moshe, Aaron, Miriam and Joshua. And we, my Chavruta and I ended up kind of assigning them different. We went like um, earth, air, fire, water, I think we Moshe uh, the fire for some obvious reasons, uh, Miriam, the water. <laughs> And, um, and Aaron was, was air kind of like the connector between all the people. And then Joshua was like the yes. last wow. person. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. It was a really fun class. I still remember it, it was many, many years ago. Um, <laughs> wow. So, so just to kind of like, are there any other thoughts or questions on that midrash mm-hmm. specifically before I try and connect a few dots? Maybe Moshe was the one that was assigned more to be the leader with Koch and Aaron was the leader more with his uh, feelings and empathy. Right. I would like to think that both would um, be compelling enough to the people that they would merit the same, you know, response upon those, those leaders dying. But as, as Denise pointed out, I think there is a certain just compelling element when you're, you know, more in the empathy realm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to add my, uh, my avot de Rabbi Natan piece, and then you can try to connect all yeah, these. Sure. Okay, just because it's on the same on the same uh, midrash here. So, by the way, Joanna just wrote in the in the chat that it actually isn't in Torah that it says um, uh, that it says forty days, but that um, but that it took forty days. Okay, that forty days were it says Vimalulo Arbaim Yom and he was uh you know filled up for him Arbaim Yom. We think that that is referring to his embalming because it says right before that he's going to be embalmed. And then it says Kikeni Malu Yame Hachanutim because this is how they uh fulfilled their way of embalming. And then it says Vaifkuoto Mitzraim Shiv Imyom and they, the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. So uh, this does say 70 days. I'm sorry that I originally wrote 40 days, but 70 days. And, um, but nothing about 30 days here. And, uh, and, and yeah, I think I was mentioning this the other day in one of my classes that sometimes you learn Midrash and you just think they're in the Torah. Um, so it's possible that that was Midrash and that, um, but this is what I, this is what I found in chapter 50 of, of bright sheet of Genesis. Okay, so the second part of um, the, actually the first part of the Avot Rabbi Natan, but the second piece that is going to be shared on this same Midrash is actually the piece that I was very taken with. Um, Rabbi Shapiro and I often do this where we pick the same text and he's very compelled by one piece and I'm very compelled by another. So this is something that this class is very used to. I was very compelled by this piece, which says, Rabbi Meir would say, what do we learn from he pulled back many from sin, right? What did, what does it mean that Aaron was someone who kind of deterred people from sinning? When Aaron was walking down the road and he came upon a wicked person, he would wish them shalom. So someone's doing something, someone's breaking into a car and he would walk by and he would just say, hello, 
he would say hi. The next day, when that man wanted to sin, he would say, Alas, how will I be able to look Aaron in the face? I will be so embarrassed when he wishes me shalom. And so this man would stop himself from sinning. Now, I wish that if someone were doing something wrong and just said hello, that meant that they would never do it or, or stop doing what they were doing in that moment. But I do love this idea of Aaron that he didn't necessarily have to do anything other than create space for those moments, that he himself was not necessarily the one saying, this is how to pursue peace, or this is how to pursue love, or this is how to be an equalizer in relationships, but that he just showed that in his own life and in his own practice. And then similar to the idea of Someone is standing behind you in Starbucks and you pay for their coffee and then hopefully they pay for the person's coffee behind them, that pay, pay it forward type idea, that that seems to be what Aaron is looked up to for doing, that he was a person who created a life around himself where he was literally pursuing peace and And loving the idea of seeing the good in people. And so when he died, all of that goes away in in the model character. And yet now all the people have it within them. So I I loved this this beginning. I, I was also compelled by the piece that Rachel shared. But this beginning piece is so interesting to me because it shows that you can be a leader, not just by standing in front of a room and saying, you go there and you do this and this is how you should behave, but rather leading by example and 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 showing the world how it is that we should be treating other people and and walking, you know, walking this earth. So uh, that was the piece of, that about de Ravi Natan uh, uh, was interesting to me to to bring back here. Nice. Um, <clears throat> so it just to to kind of zoom out and and try to put all these these uh, midrashim together. I'm so curious to hear other people's thoughts too. But just the trend that I'm kind of seeing is how just how much of a connector he was. Like you know, Rabbi Schatz pointed out this way. He was he he just exuded connection by being by speaking very few simple words and not even explicitly directing things. He had his apparently couples therapy sessions. He had these ways of resolving conflicts between friends. And, you know, the people at least even saw him as somewhat of an intermediary between heavenly acts between God and the people. So he, you know, when you look at the totality of that connection that, that was between so many different pieces of of every fabric of society, I think it, it becomes very clear to me why this was such a such a devastating loss for the community. Beyond you know beyond what we would already know from from him at you know shot face value. Uh, so mm-hmm. I you know I really appreciate the layers that that these midrashic stories <clears throat> bring to that that understanding of processing mm-hmm. his loss. Um, and I'd be curious to hear if. Other other thoughts, questions, connections. I'll just add one thing before, while people are thinking. Um, when in comparison to Miriam, right? Miriam dies and something is physically lost. The well goes away. The water, the life source goes away. When Aaron dies, and I'm just thinking about this for the first time, so it's a little bit of a half baked thought. 
When Aaron dies, the first thing that the people do in order to make sure that Aaron lives on is bring the the garments, the 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 physical pieces of his status of leadership to someone else. So that piece of him lives on. Whereas Miriam's um, contribution to leadership is the thing that goes away that the people are so concerned about. When it comes to Aaron, what people are most concerned about is his character. Mm-hmm. And we could debate for days, you know, what which one is more important or how is it that we, we remember people most? <clears throat> is it in the things that they brought to us, whether physically or in lessons, or is it their character and that which they taught us how to be people in the world. And I think those are two, uh, two very different pieces of their deaths. And yet in the same Parsha, um, so we get to see them kind of mirrored up against one another, but it just, I just thought of it. You said something that, that uh, I can't even tell you what you said that made me think of that, but you said something that sparked that idea in my mind. Um, and I, I'm curious if that, if that was also how the people felt that they, that when, because when Moshe dies, the people don't really lose anything because they go into the land. Moshe dies, so they lose Moshe and they lose their leader. But in terms of loss of, of a thing, they, they actually gain something in his, in his death. So uh, three very different elements of, of loss of leaders. Yeah. As, as just kind of a side tangent, since you brought in the Miriam piece, um, there's, there's some commentaries. I taught about this at a Sudash Lushit thing that Moshe took over kind of the well management after she died. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it was only like reactivated. Who's this? Rabbeinu Bahia, our friend again, um, <laughs> the well became reactivated only through the merit of the lawgiver. Moses. Yeah, and I think that I I also taught on this topic yesterday, and I think it comes up in terms of the the way in which the people have no patience for Moshe continuing to mourn his sister, mm-hmm. and so they want him to get back. Where is that well? How can we be living without water? And this idea that Moshe needs to find his leadership now without her, and so he takes on that piece, the, the well comes back and he takes over that piece of what was known as her, kind of her portfolio, so yes. to speak, in leadership. Um, again, tangential to what we have here. But, um, <laughs> that's okay. You are, there are many fewer tangential thoughts in this class than there are in most classes with the wonderful, the loving, the sometimes a little bit nuts Rabbi Matthew Shapiro. So don't you worry. Uh, we have stayed oh, yeah. mostly on track. I loved what you were saying though, that there's, there's like, what's the tangible pieces of leadership and what are the intangible pieces of, of leadership? And um, I think some of in that class, when I was doing the four elements thing, that's what we were also trying to get at was that, um, mm-hmm. that Miriam, like I, I think of her as also having spiritual leadership that had a very, you know, physical component, but, but that, um, right. Like peacekeeping is, is such a, you know, it's like a kind of role where you almost hope that your work makes you irrelevant. Like as a, like, I imagine you run into this in rabbinic pastor roles. It's like, you want 
the people that you are helping to pastor to become functional enough that you no longer have to be there. It's mm-hmm. a very different kind of um, kind mm-hmm. of leadership, but like they're, that's what they're so they're longing for when he's gone. Yeah. 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 Sure. Any, uh, any thoughts or comments on this whole class? <laughs> we will always need you infamous leader. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I was, I actually was talking about that type of leadership. I, um, I was the final plenary speaker for the Kavod Venichum conference where they asked about, um, our Hever Kadisha at Temple Betham. And one of the pieces that I spoke about, cause they asked, you know, what, what's the benefit for you being a rabbi versus having, um, uh, congregants lead the Hever Kadisha? And I said, I think there's pros and cons, but I think one of the cons to the clergy person actually starting it is that you at, you ultimately want the Hever Kadisha to be lay led, not because the rabbi doesn't want another thing to do and not because the rabbi shouldn't be involved in terms of the, the intricacies of what to do and how to do it. And such and such a thing is happening in the Tahara room. How do I get around that? But because you want the people to take care of their people as opposed to the clergy person being in charge of taking care of every person who dies. You want the Hebra Kadisha to be a space where rabbis can be on the Hebra. I'm not saying the clergy should be devoid from that opportunity, but that the people within the community should have the, the strength and the encouragement to be the ones who really take hold of this mitzvah rather than the rabbi saying, I think this would be a good thing for all of us to do. So it's interesting that you're, that we're bringing up it up here in terms of death because that's the way that I was just talking about it this, this past week. And, you know, I think parents feel similarly if, if they are, blessed with a life where they die before their children, which is what every parent hopes for, for their child. Um, they hope that they have taught their children enough and passed on enough things that when they are no longer physically around, that they, that their children are able to benefit from that which they've learned and acquired and, and set up for them, um, in, in a, in the same successful way that they were successful as children with their parents around. So, um, I think you're, you're completely correct. And being a rabbi is a, is yes, there are moments for that for sure. And then there are moments where, you know, there it's, that will never go away, which is part of the thrill of the job. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.